Here we go. Roll Here video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Behind the Slate. This is a film history podcast where we take a deep dive into the life and work of cinema's greatest directors, from the most well-known to the more obscure. My name is Aaron Strand, and as both a movie lover and a fan of history, I am so excited to go on this journey with you. I want to start off by saying welcome to everybody. You know, if you're someone who doesn't watch a lot of movies or maybe only watches more recent films... Welcome! I hope what you hear inspires you to search your streaming apps or, if available, head down to your local art house theater or video store and watch something you otherwise wouldn't have. You know, quote-unquote cinema is not some exclusive club. There are no doormen, no gatekeepers, no dress code. This is the people's art form. I really can't stand people who are like, Oh, if you haven't seen this obscure Norwegian documentary about an old woman pooping on a tree, you can't talk about movies. No, that's ridiculous. These stories are meant to be understood and enjoyed by everybody. Now, if you're a seasoned cinephile, you know, hoping to talk about obscure shorts shot on Super 8 or the subtle editing choices of Ziga Vertov, you know, I'm probably going to be covering some familiar ground, but in doing so, I hope you get a chance to learn some new things and hopefully reconnect with whatever made you fall in love with these films and filmmakers in the first place. And that's the thing. I mean, there are so many great films and filmmakers out there. And despite being an art form that's only 130 years old, the diversity is astounding. (laughs) That's one of the barriers to entry that a lot of my non-cinephile friends tell me that they have. You know, where do I even start? Well, I feel you. In fact, As I began planning this podcast, I was overwhelmed by this question. Do I go chronologically? Well, then I'd have at least an entire season talking about silent film. Not the best way to build an audience for a new podcast. Do I go by genre? Well, you know, that felt kind of repetitive. I wouldn't want to listen to a whole season of French New Wave, you know, talking about an endless series of chain-smoking French dudes and Agnes Varda. Ultimately, I decided that I wanted to share these stories in the same way that I watch movies, jumping across genre, geography, and and time period, you know, just finding common connections and themes between wildly different artists. So this first season is titled Strangers in a Strange Land, filmmakers whose lives and careers were defined by a major geographical move. Sometimes these moves were by choice, sometimes by accident. Sometimes these artists were refugees. Sometimes the moves worked out and sometimes they backfired. But the ability of these artists to transform uncertainty into art is an important lesson, I think. Because, I mean, let's face it, the film industry is risk-averse. From the silent era's assembly line style of productions to now, you know, when Marvel is planning out their release schedule 10 years in advance, this business does everything it can to eliminate uncertainty. And yet... These artists turned insecurity and outsider status into some of the greatest films ever made. I also want to give a huge shout out to Greg Kleinschmidt and Jacqueline Postagian of the Seen and Heard podcast. 
Their support has been tremendous in helping me get this project off the ground. And if you haven't listened to Seen and Heard, they are amazing. They go through the Sight and Sound Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list. It's one of my absolute favorite podcasts. I've never missed an episode, and I am honored to join their podcasting family as part of the Arroyo Film Club. So having said all that, without further ado, let's introduce our first director. This man is in many ways the original auteur, a man who wrote, directed, and starred in his own films from the earliest days of popular silent cinema. He was the world's first international superstar. He was bigger than Jesus before John Lennon was even born. To some, he's a humanist hero. To others, a controversial radical or a sexual predator. But in any case, his life set the template of the rags-to-riches Hollywood story that so many after him have tried to imitate— Of course, I'm talking about Charlie Chaplin. Born in the slums of Victorian London, Chaplin worked his way through the English music halls, eventually making it to Los Angeles, California, just as it was becoming a hub of film production. Over the next three decades, he made over 65 shorts and 11 feature films, becoming one of the highest paid people in the world, single-handedly establishing the rules of comedy on film, and creating some of the greatest films ever made. I am so excited to get into this story because it is truly crazy. But before we do, let's acknowledge our sources. We have David Robinson's Chaplin, His Life and Art. This is sort of the definitive Chaplin biography done in some collaboration with the Chaplin family. It is exhaustive and super well-researched. It's great. There's Chaplin, A Life by Stephen Weissman, which is a wonderful psychological look into Chaplin. There's Charlie Chaplin and His Times by Kenneth S. Lynn. There's my autobiography, the one Chaplin wrote at the end of his life. And then there's Charlie Chaplin's own story, which is supposedly written by Chaplin with the help of Rose Wilder Lane, the daughter and ghostwriter of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. Now, the Charlie Chaplin's own story is a ridiculous falsification, some sort of weird Dickensian fantasy. Throughout his life, Chaplin had a flair for theatrical embellishment, coupled with an inability to face emotional hardships. And this habit seems to have rolled over even into his later life with my autobiography. Now, there's a lot of details that we only know because Chaplin told us. So we have to take these things with a grain of salt. You know, his childhood particularly is much mythologized, and there's a lot we just don't know. But we're going to do our best using our available sources and the amazing work of these biographers to tell the complete tale. Before we get into Charlie's life, let's take a step back and let's get a little bit of context of where we're coming from. There's not a place in all the land like the good old Tower of London, where everything is awfully grand in the glorious Tower of London. For the walls are high and the dungeons deep, refreshments there are very, very cheap, but the beer it is not warranted to keep in the good old Tower of London. Sing hey! Chaplin was born in London in 1889. Okay, this is the final decade of the Victorian era. Britain was the largest imperial power in the history of the world. You know, money and wealth and loot is pouring in from 
everywhere. This is an exciting time to be in London. Things are being invented. The first streets to be electrified. The world's first underground train was being built. And in fact, the year before Chaplin was born, 1888, the world's first film, the Roundhay Garden scene, was shot in Leeds by Louis Le Prince. London had exploded during this time. It had a population of about 1 million people in 1801 to 5.5 million people in 1891. It was the largest city in the world, a quarter larger than Beijing. To accommodate this massive population growth, millions lived in overcrowded, unsanitary slums, dusty, dirty, teeming with people. Author George W. M. Reynolds said, quote, the most unbounded wealth is the neighbor of the most hideous poverty. The crumbs which fall from the tables of the rich would appear delicious viands to the starving millions, and yet these millions obtain them not. In that city, there are in all five prominent buildings, the church in which the pious pray, the gin palace to which the wretched poor resort to drown their sorrows, the pawnbrokers where miserable creatures pledge their raiment and their children's raiment even unto the last rag, to obtain the means of purchasing food, and alas, too often intoxicating drink. The prison, where the victims of the vitiated condition of society expiate the crimes to which they have been driven by starvation and despair, and the workhouse to which the destitute, the aged, and the friendless hasten to lay down their aching heads and die. That is a very dramatic quote, but it speaks to just how hard things were. I mean, this is a world where disease and crime were rampant. In the slums, the child mortality rate was estimated at 20%, while the estimated life expectancy of an East End laborer was 19 years. The year before Chaplin was born, London was gripped by the Whitechapel murders of Jack the Ripper, who viciously preyed upon the 80,000 London prostitutes working the streets. Industrialization comes with terrible growing pains. And into this undulating sea of humanity stepped a poor shoemaker's daughter with dreams of being a star. Her name was Hannah Hill. She was 16 years old and had just run away from home. And just like teenagers today, she idolized, you know, powerful, smart, sexually liberated pop stars. Hannah looked to people like Lily Langtree, an actress and producer who had worked her way out of the strict social classes of Victorian England to the peak of British society, to the point where she became the mistress of the Prince of Wales and future King Edward VII. Inspired by Miss Langtree, Hannah Hill gave herself a new name, Lily Harley. And where would a poor young Londoner with you know, good looks and talent go to seek fame and fortune? Well, the answer is a uniquely British institution that will be very important to our story moving forward. The Music Hall. Now, music halls were these hybrid pub theaters. You know, people would go to drink, socialize, pick up partners or prostitutes, all while performers came and went from the stage in this sort of epic variety show. This was cutting-edge entertainment of the day. Author Stephen Weissman said, quote, British Music Hall was a hodgepodge of variety entertainment with trained seals, comic jugglers, magic acts, knife throwers, fortune tellers, acrobats, and the like. But it also was, when practiced in its highest form by serious thespians, a sophisticated proletarian art form whose historical origins were a direct outgrowth of the Industrial Revolution. And by the 1890s, 
there were over 234 music halls across England. And still, competition was fierce, with green or middling performers forced to tour in the provinces to gain experience and hone their skills. Author David Robinson says, quote, A music hall act had to seize and hold its audience and make its mark within a very limited time. The performer in the music hall could not rely on a sympathetic context or build-up. Sarah Bernhardt might find herself following Lockhart's elephants on the bill. So every performer had to learn the secrets of attack and structure, the need to give the act a crescendo, a beginning, middle, and smashing exit to grab the applause. Now, in addition to all these variety and circus acts, you know, there was also a uniquely British performance art that found a home in the music halls, and it was called pantomime. And I think it's very important to talk about because if you've ever watched uh, a Charlie Chaplin film or really any silent comedy from the 1910s or 1920s, you you might have thought that style was just invented for silent movies. But no, silent performance did not come about in a vacuum. It was invented thanks, actually, to a ridiculous form of bureaucratic censorship. 150 years earlier, in 1737, the British government effectively banned spoken theater outside of a few royal theaters that were sanctioned. This was all done over licensing disputes. But this is Britain, the country of Shakespeare and Marlowe. Theater is deeply a part of its culture. So to get around laws, British theater owners developed a form of silent entertainment where characters emoted the story through gesture and facial expressions and large, exaggerated makeup. Well, finally, the Theaters Act of 1843 did away with the licensing restrictions, but pantomime endured through the 19th century, in some ways because the British Empire had become so global. You know, pantomime traveled very well because it could be understood regardless of native language, and this would also be the incredible power of early silent film. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In 1881, Lily Harley was out touring the provinces, cutting her teeth on the music hall circuit, when she met a dashing young singer named Charles Chaplin. Now, like her, he was another ambitious Londoner. He was the son of a butcher. She thought he looked like Napoleon, or perhaps she was just imagining herself as another one of her childhood heroes, French Empress Josephine de Beauharnais. Perhaps it was their shared experience coming from modest backgrounds, coupled with the fact that they were both teenagers. But Lily and Charles became fast sweethearts. The good times were not to last, for in 1883, Lily ditched Charles for a wealthy aristocrat named Sidney Hawks, who took her to South Africa to get married and live on his family's plantation surrounded by servants and saddle horses. At least that's what she claimed. Later, Lily would change the story, saying Sidney Hawks was a Jewish bookmaker from the East End. It could be that this Sydney character was nothing more than a con man and a pimp who seduced the impressionable 18-year-old and led her into prostitution in a South African gold rush boomtown. This is a well-documented pattern of the day. Now, there's a theatrical newspaper of record of the time called The Era, which we can track almost any performer's performance history. And at the time, her work was very sporadic. And considering that 1.5% of London's total population were working as prostitutes to provide or supplement their income, now it's not unreasonable to imagine that this wasn't her first experience in sex work. Whatever the truth is, Lily returned from South Africa in 1884 with an out-of-wedlock child. Upon returning to London, she immediately sought out Charles Chaplin, And to his credit, he married her and agreed to raise the child, Sidney, as his own. But again, the story is a little murky. Now, many have pointed out that Sidney, in fact, looks far more like Charles Chaplin Sr. than his future son Charlie does. And in fact, later in life, 
Charlie himself would confess to friends his serious doubts about whether or not Charles Chaplin Sr. was his biological father. Whatever the truth may be, I see both Charles Chaplin Sr. and Lily Harley as struggling artists doing whatever they can to survive. You know, they're caught in a really tough spot trying to move up a rigid class system, trying to uphold the strict Victorian ideals of morality. And they're not bad people. They're struggling artists and dreamers, you know, a bit naive and both trying to live in a very brutal world. And in these early years, they were actually succeeding. Lily was performing regularly, becoming a known name on the music hall circuit. And eventually, Charles, too, established himself as a sort of mid to upper mid-level star. He was a singer who would play these characters of kind of fanciful drunks who would sing songs about uh, being bedeviled by problems such as mothers-in-law or landladies and nagging wives and crying babies, and the audience loved it. They were making good money, and they were able to afford a nice apartment. And on April 16th, 1889, Lily gave birth to her second son, Charles Spencer Chaplin on East Lane in Walworth, South London. Charlie would often reflect on this idyllic time, these first few years of his life. He said he would remember his mother tucking him and Sydney into bed before dashing off to the theater to perform as some big star. But beneath the surface, problems were bubbling. Lily was beginning to suffer from bouts of ill health that kept her from performing. Her career faltered. Meanwhile, Charles was suffering from a different vice— Author David Robinson says, quote, Drink was the endemic disease of the music halls. They had evolved from drinking establishments, and the sale of liquor still made up an important part of the manager's incomes. When they were not on stage, the artists were expected to mingle with the audiences in the bars to encourage conviviality and consumption, which inevitably was best achieved by example. Poor Chaplin was only one of many who succumbed to alcoholism as an occupational hazard. The marriage suffered from more than just Charles Sr.'s drinking, also Lily's infidelity. At some point early on, possibly before Charlie was even born, she had struck up an affair with one of Charles Sr.'s competitors, a slightly more popular singer of the day named Leo Dryden, eventually becoming pregnant with his child. Charles returned home from a tour in America to find that Lily had moved out with the kids to a nice flat on Westminster Bridge Road. There, she treated her boys to a life of luxury— Charles remembers his mother as this glamorous, self-made superstar, when in reality, Leo was affording her luxurious lifestyle. Six months after she gave birth to his son, Leo burst in one night. He took the child and ran away to Canada, leaving Lily, Sydney, and four-year-old Charlie homeless. The good times were over, and they would not return. Desperate, Lily once again returned to Charles Sr., only to find that he had taken up with another woman— Hurt from being spurned twice by Lily, Charles refused to help her support the kids. She took him to court, and the bitter affair ended with Charles Sr. being ordered to pay 15 shillings a week in child support. Now, ordering is one thing, enforcing is another. Charles never sent the money. Lily, Sidney, and Charlie moved from apartment to apartment under a constant threat of eviction. However, Lily remained a devoted and fiercely protective mother who used her theatrical skills to shield her children from reality and put a smile on her boys' faces. Charlie wrote later, quote, In spite of the squalor in which we were forced to live, she kept Sydney and me off the streets and made us feel we were not the ordinary product of poverty, but unique and distinguished, end quote. 
As she pawned her jewelry and nice clothes, she held on to her theatrical gowns and wigs, giving private performances to Sidney and Charlie. She loved the theater more than anything. She could recite entire plays from memory, performing every role for her kids and teaching them how to watch actors, how to observe their craft. Despite her lack of stage success, Lily was a pro. She thought like a pro, and she taught her sons to do the same. Charlie later said, quote, If it had not been for my mother... I doubt I could have made a success of pantomime. She was one of the greatest pantomime artists I have ever seen. She would sit for hours at a window, looking down at people on the street and illustrating with her hands, eyes, and facial expression just what was going on below. All the time, she would deliver a running fire of comment. And it was through watching and listening to her that I learned not only how to express my emotions with my hands and face, but also how to observe and study people. Charlie absorbed Lily's teachings like a sponge. He would follow people on the street and then run home to show his mother his perfected mimicry. It was in this way he copied the drunken walk of a doorman that became the signature gate of his future character, the Tramp. With performing opportunities coming few and far between, Lily turned to dressmaking to make ends meet. It was essentially a work-from-home sweatshop where you were forced to rent a sewing machine and pay off the rent of that sewing machine and keep the meager leftovers. Again, it's not unreasonable to assume that she supplemented her income through prostitution. Their living conditions never fell into abject, abject poverty. The money had to come from somewhere, and Charles Sr. refused to pay child support. So there's no way Lily could have afforded this on a meager seamstress salary. Charlie would allude to this in his later works with lines like, quote, I shall never be able to tell anybody all the poverty and all the misery and all the humiliation we, my mother, my brother, and I have endured. I shall never be able to tell, for no one would believe it. I myself at times cannot believe all the things we have gone through. Lily desperately tried to keep the glamorous fantasy alive for herself and her children, but malnutrition and ill health were taking their toll. Her voice was wearing out, and on one night in 1894... Something happened that would become enshrined in performance history. It was the Aldershot Canteen, a dingy, smoke-filled music hall jammed with rowdy, drunken soldiers. Lily was performing one of her rare gigs with a five-year-old Charlie waiting in the wings. Charlie later remembered, quote, I remember when my mother's voice cracked and went into a whisper. The audience began to laugh and sing falsetto and make catcalls. My mother was obliged to walk off the stage. When she came into the wings, very upset and argued with the stage manager, who, having seen me perform before mother's friends, said something about letting me go in her place. In the turmoil, I remember him leading me by the hand and after a few explanatory words to the audience, leaving me alone on the stage. And before the glare of the footlights and faces in smoke, I started to sing. This was the song he sang. The town is well known to everybody round about the market, don't you see? I've now fought to find with Jack at all when he's as he used to be. But somehow since he's had the bullion left, he has altered for the worst. When I sees the way he treats old pals, I am filled with nothing but disgust. He says as how he isn't close enough. He says as he sang across the stage, he heard a clink, and then another, and then another. 
Soon he realized that a shower of money was being thrown onto the stage. Young Charlie stopped singing. He couldn't believe it. He announced to the audience that he would pick up the money first and sing again after he was done picking it up, which only made the audience laugh harder. The stage manager came out to help him pick up the coins, and Charlie got jealous thinking the stage manager was stealing it, which the audience picked up on and laughed even harder. Finally, Charlie finished the song, he did a dance, he even imitated his mother's voice cracking, which caused even more laughter and more money throwing from the audience. Finally, Lily came out on stage and carried him off to a tremendous applause. Or maybe not. I mean, this is a story Charlie would tell in several different iterations throughout his life. There is no record of Lily Harley being on that bill that night. Maybe this is all a Chaplin fantasy, a story he told himself about saving his struggling mother that he told so many times he began to believe it. Regardless of its factual nature, I personally would like to believe that the story speaks to just a deeper truth of how Charlie saw himself and his mother during these hard years. This failed performance, whether true or not, was one of Lily's last. The dream of Lily Harley was over. She once again took her original name, Hannah. She called herself Hannah Chaplin because technically she was still married to Charles Chaplin Sr. She turned to religion, becoming a fervent, born-again evangelical. Part of her hoped God would restore her voice. Another part of her was moved by Christ's forgiveness for the fallen. And perhaps another part of her just wanted the charity, more willingly given to the quote-unquote deserving poor who professed their love for God. Instead of plays, she began to perform dramatic reenactments of Bible scenes for her kids at home. This reaching for moral salvation was also paired with very immoral desperation. There's a story of Charlie's older brother, Sidney, coming home one day claiming, I found a purse. He gave an elaborate account of finding this purse, but it had no identification. Inside were silver and gold coins. Their mother claimed it was a gift from God. Obviously, Sidney stole the purse. This story was a means to justify the action, but that's where they were at. They were desperate. Hannah's health was becoming even worse. She started suffering from terrible migraines that required her to lie for hours in a dark room with tea bags over her eyes. She told the boys that this was due to the eye strain of the sweatshop work she had to do. I mean, it's no wonder that the dehumanizing mechanization of labor would have a profound influence on Charlie's later work. For two and a half miserable years, she bounced in and out of the hospital until finally, in 1896, Hannah had a mental breakdown and was hospitalized into the Lambeth Infirmary. What we know now is that Hannah's long run of ill health was the result of the onset of syphilis, a fact that a later doctor's note would confirm. Who knows when she contracted it? Perhaps it was on her trip to South Africa all those years ago, or perhaps it was from a one-night stand or a passing John. But once she went into the Lambeth Infirmary, she was separated from her children. Sydney, age 12, was shipped off to a vocational program to learn how to become a sailor. Charlie, aged 7, was loaded into a horse-drawn bakery van and moved 12 miles out of the city to the Hanwell School for Orphans and Destitute Children. Living in the orphanage and separated from his protective brother, Sydney, was a traumatic experience, to say the least. He was immediately diagnosed with ringworm, which forced him to be quarantined, have his head shaved, and covered in iodine before joining the other 1,147 inmates. Hanwell was not the worst of the Victorian-era workhouses, but it was not good. An official report from the time describes that each child had about a 6 by 6 area to play in. This place was cold. They were not given adequate clothing, particularly to go outside. 
The report said, quote, Even the teachers suffer from mental depression due to the dull monotony and want of mental life in the whole establishment. Undoubtedly, the general tendency of living in the school is to, as it were, run all our children into a mold. They were also subjected to cruel yet not unusual forms of discipline common to British schools throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Chaplin writes, quote, Every Friday, Punishment Day, was an elaborately choreographed ritual purposely designed to instill unquestioning obedience in the abject inmates. At 10 o'clock, we marched in order into the gloomy armory and were left to stand at silent attention, staring at the implements of torture, a vaulting horse, an easel with straps upon which hung a cane, the birch, and the cat. After a half hour of suspense and anticipation of the horror to come, there entered solemnly the doctor, a master, two assistants, and the dreaded Captain Hundrum, the disciplinarian. Striding up to a spread-eagled victim whose trousers were down and buttocks exposed with his wrists strapped to the vaulting horse with the swoosh of a cane as thick as a man's thumb, Hindrum left three pink welts across the victim's bottom while the entire assemblage of 500 boys looked on in terrified amazement. In this environment, Charlie developed a disdain for authority and rigidity that never left. He was in Hanwell for 18 months. I mean, for a kid, that must have felt like an eternity. Now, in this terrifying environment, Charlie used the coping mechanisms he learned from his mother. Charlie would stay by himself, pretending to be a very rich and grand person. He even regaled his fellow inmates with stories about his glamorous mother, the famous actress. Quote, They tried to break my spirit at Hanwell. They never succeeded. But in another sense... Charlie retreated into his imagination and never left. Much later, the Polish actress Pola Negri, who had a highly publicized affair with Chaplin in the 20s, said, quote, It was as if a part of Chaplin had never grown up. He was at his best when he created situations to which he could react with the confusion and bashful awkwardness of the young. His ability to bring out maternal feelings was one of his greatest assets with the opposite sex. She would go on to describe the thousands of letters he would receive from women all over the world wanting to look after him. He saw his mother periodically during his time at Hanwell. Sometimes she would visit him, or he would be sent home for a day before Hannah would then check back into the asylum. Her glamour and beauty had been worn by stress, poverty, malnutrition, and illness. She appeared ragged and much older than her true age of 33. On September 15th, 1898, Hannah Chaplin was fully committed to the Cane Hill Lunatic Asylum with this heartbreaking admission note. She has been very strange in manner, at one time abusive and noisy, at another using endearing terms, has been confined in a padded room repeatedly on account of sudden violence, shouting, singing, and talking incoherently, complains of her head and depressed and crying this morning, dazed and unable to give any reliable information, asks if she is dying, states she belongs to Christ Church, she was sent here on a mission by the Lord, says she wants to get out of this world. When Sidney told Charlie what happened, Charlie insisted that she wasn't insane, but had instead, quote, deliberately escaped from her mind, as if she were taking a vacation from reality. With Hannah fully institutionalized, the civic authorities decided Sidney and Charlie should be placed into the care of their sole remaining able-bodied parent. So they loaded him up in the horse-drawn cart and left him at the home of their father, Charles Chaplin Sr., Still performing regularly, Charles Chaplin Sr. lived in a nice apartment on Kennington Road in a Commonwealth marriage to a woman named Louise. 
but his drunkard stage persona had become one with his day-to-day life. Charles was now in the late stages of full-blown alcoholism. He staggered, stumbled, and zigzagged his way through performances, family dinners, and multi-day blackouts. Charlie watched him with fascination, mimicking his mannerisms, his drunken stupor, desperate for the attention from the distant father figure he'd always dreamed of. His partner, Louise, was also an alcoholic, and she was very resentful of the kids from another woman being unceremoniously dumped on her doorstep. She grumbled and complained and threatened violence, particularly to the 13-year-old Sidney, who spent more and more time away from the house. This dynamic exacerbated the couple's already vicious codependent cycle. The more hurt and rejected Louise felt by Charles Sr.'s neglect, the more unpleasant she became and the longer he stayed away. This was very confusing for a young Charlie. He also saw the good side of his father. Quote, There were times when he was charming and tender and would kiss her goodnight before leaving for the theater. And on a Sunday morning, he would breakfast with us and tell Louise about the vaudeville acts that were working with him and have us all enthralled. Other times, Louise would lash out at her drunkard husband by locking his children out of the house or denying them food out of spite. On one occasion, Charles Sr. came home and upon hearing what she'd done, threw a heavy clothes brush at her, knocking her unconscious. This was the alcohol-fueled insanity that defined their relationship. Charlie and Sid spent more and more time away from the house, walking up and down Lambeth Walk, picking food out of the trash to eat. Thankfully for the kids, Hannah was once again released from the hospital. Her sanity returned, she rented a flat and a sewing machine, and rescued her boys from their untenable living situation. Now, perhaps because he just spent an extended time with his kids for the first time in his life, Charles Sr. was a bit more willing to pay up his child support. But he helped out in another way. He contacted an old friend, William Jackson, founder of the boys' clogging troupe Eight Lancashire Lads, and introduced him to his son, Charlie. Jackson and his wife invited Charlie to join the group. It's basically like little boys doing river dance. Hannah appreciated that they were both devout Catholics and whose own children performed in the act, and they were by all accounts responsible and good managers. Charlie was given room and board and a little cash for roughly three shows a night. The dancing was intricate, and Charlie had to practice diligently for six weeks just before being allowed to perform. He was now a working performer in the music hall circuit. This would be Charlie's life for two and a half years, and it was a formal education. Despite being a tough boss, the Jacksons kept his life safe and regimented. Quote, It was good training, fitting us for the harder work that comes before the goddess of success began to throw her favors around. Now, this group performed throughout the provinces and at all the big music halls in London. They even performed at the brand new London Hippodrome, which was a mind-blowing performance venue of the day. Listen to this description of this music hall. A palace of marble, mosaic, gilt, and terracotta, which could be flooded with 100,000 gallons of water or converted within 60 seconds to a dry performing space by raising up platforms which lay at the bottom of the artificial lakes. It was at this venue that Chaplin and the other Lancashire lads were invited to perform in a production of Cinderella starring the Spanish-born clown Marceline. This clown was very important because his stage presence and outfit, you know, a too small quote, a grotesquely wide short trousers and feet turned out encased in shoes that were too long and turned up at the ends, these were no doubt a big influence on Charlie's later character. Marceline is an incredible story of his own heartbreaking show business story. You know, he was once the world's most famous clown before eventually fading into obscurity and committing suicide in 1927. In this scene, in this production of Cinderella, 
Charlie was supposed to be a cat. <laughs> he was like cat number two. He had no lines, but Charlie, being Charlie, upstaged the scene by sniffing the rear end of one of the other kids who was playing a dog, and then having captured the audience's attention, sniffed out a spot on stage and mock urinated by raising his leg, then turned to the house and started flirting with the audience before sauntering off the stage to great applause. He was immediately grabbed by the stage manager and told, never do that again or you're fired. <laughs> While touring with the eight Lancaster lads, Charlie would sit in the wings studying some of the great comedians of the day. There was Dan Leno, Marie Lloyd, Zarmo, the comedy tramp juggler. He would imitate them and then come home and entertain the other lads with his mimicry. He picked up an encyclopedic knowledge of gags, jokes, routines. Later, his Hollywood collaborators would frequently comment on his mind like an addict or, or refer to him as a, an encyclopedia of comedy. And keep in mind, at this time, having never gone to school, he was completely illiterate. Toward the end of his run with the eight Lancashire lads, his father, Charles Sr., was not well. The music hall community threw him a benefit concert in which Charlie performed, Shortly after the benefit concert, Charlie saw his father in a pub. He was sitting in a corner, sick, swollen. He had one hand, Napoleon-like, in his waistcoat, as if to ease his breathing. Charlie was shocked by how terrible he looked. For the first time in his life, Charles Sr. hugged and kissed his 12-year-old son. It was about a week later that Charlie was walking down the street with his mother. There was a woman dressed in rags, her head shaven, her face dirty. She was being tortured by some boys, you know, mocking her in the street. To Charlie's shock, his mother approached this woman and said, Eva? Eva Lester? She was an old friend that Hannah had known from her early days performing in the music hall. This was a woman who was once praised as, quote, one of the prettiest and most fascinating songstresses we have. Hannah took Eva in, fed her, cleaned her, gave her what clothes she could spare, Eva disappeared back into the night and was never seen again. Shortly after this, Charles Sr. died from cirrhosis of the liver. He was 37 years old. His obituary in the theatrical newspaper The Era was absolutely heartbreaking. It read, Our readers will hear with regret but without surprise of the death of poor Charles Chaplin, the well-known mimic and music hall comedian. Of late, poor Chaplin was not fortunate, and good engagements, we are afraid, did not often come his way brutal, brutal obituary. Hannah and Charlie attended the funeral along with some of the extended Chaplin family. He was buried in a pauper's grave. Afterward, the Chaplins all gathered in a pub for lunch and then dropped Hannah and Charlie off at their home. When they got there, they found they had no food and no money. Charlie sold an old oil stove to a passing junk seller. With the meager change he could get, he bought a loaf of bread, which they dipped into old beef drippings. The encounter with Eva and Charles Sr.'s death and her own ill health led Hannah to become increasingly paranoid about Charlie's well-being in the music hall scene. She badgered the Jacksons about Charlie's intense performing schedule until finally they cut him from the eight Lancashire lads. Hannah forbid Charlie from ever again performing. With Hannah back to doing sweatshop work and attending fundamentalist revivals on the weekends, Sid working as a merchant sailor, Charlie did his best to help support the family. Over the next two years, he worked as a flower seller, a baker's boy, a doctor's boy, a barber's boy, a dentist's assistant, a page boy, a butler, a street cleaner, 
a waiter, a janitor, a prop man, a glassblower, a boy who feeds paper into a printing press, a street hawker of old clothes, a dance instructor, and he made and sold toy boats made out of paper. Despite all this work, the acting bug had bit Charlie. Behind his mother's back, Charlie would put on his best collar and visit the H. Blackmore's Theatrical Agency, one of the top theatrical agencies in London, requesting any parts for boy actors. He registered his address with the office and yet never heard anything. He went to this office periodically until his nice clothes became too shabby to go anymore. There were also some anecdotes from friends at the time that Charlie would be experimenting with dancing or comedy acts that he would rope friends into. He would come up with the incredibly British names of Bristol and Chaplin, Millionaire Tramps, and Ted Prince's Nippers. Chaplin later wrote, quote, Even when I was in the orphanage, when I was roaming the streets trying to find enough to eat to keep alive, even then I thought of myself as the greatest actor in the world. I had to feel that exuberance that comes from utter confidence in yourself. Without that, you go down in defeat. One-on-one -on -one with his mother, they entertained each other by looking out the window of their shabby attic apartment, mimicking the passers-by, constructing elaborate improvisations about the people they saw. But slowly, things again grew dark. The sewing machine was repossessed. Hannah began neglecting her physical appearance. The apartment once again fell into disrepair, foul-aired, filthy dishes. Hannah began to sit listlessly looking out the window. One day, as he returned home from one of his odd jobs, the neighborhood kids came up to him and said, Your mother's gone insane. She's going door-to-door, -door, handing out coal, saying it's birthday gifts. Charlie ran upstairs to find his mother staring blankly out the window. He sobbed in her lap while she vacantly stroked his hair. As he took her to the infirmary, a crowd gathered to watch Hannah stagger like a drunk. On May 9th, 1903, exactly two years to the day after Charles Sr.'s death, a 14-year-old Charlie had to bring Hannah back to the asylum. Her admitting papers read, quote, Charles Chaplin's son states she keeps on mentioning a lot of people who are dead and fancies she can see them looking out of the window. Something inside Charlie broke that day. His mother's return to the asylum was the horrifying climax of his chaotic childhood. Up until this point, he had held on to hope that his mother would one day find stability and return to her once glamorous self. But now, at the age of 14, the truth came crashing down upon him. His mother would never recover. He lost faith in her, in her stories, and in the dream that they would one day be happy again. Later, Chaplin's closest friend, Thomas Burke, would write about Charlie, quote, there was a dark, troubled quality in his eyes, a haunted look that distinguished Chaplin the man. He was in some way very dreadfully hurt by some one blow, and the poison of the wound went right into his being. It constitutes his knowledge. It is what in every film he is trying to tell us. On the screen, he is still the wounded boy of 14, trying to hide his hurt and asking help for the young and the wounded. Years later, Roland Tothero, Charlie's cameraman for most of his career, would disclose that throughout most of his life, Chaplin was convinced that he too would one day eventually go insane. This was a tough time for Charlie. If he was caught, the authorities would send him to an institution or ship him off to a workhouse. The landlady where they were staying was kind enough to let him stay for a few days and offered him food, but Charlie was too shy to ask. Embarrassed, scared, he avoided anyone he might know spending his days loitering in the streets of Lambeth. But fate threw this desperate boy a life preserver. 
It was at this time that Sid returned from a long-delayed sea voyage with enough cash to last them a few months. When he found a ragged, filthy Charlie, he could barely recognize him. As their Aunt Kate would later reflect, quote, It seems strange to me that anyone can write about Charlie without mentioning Sidney. They have been inseparable all their lives. Sid had been father and mother to Charlie. Freed from their mother's disapproving eye, Sid and Charlie were determined to fulfill their show business dreams. They canvassed around looking for work. They went back to the agencies asking for gigs. When a miraculous twist of luck came, Charlie received a postcard from the H. Blackmore's agency. I mean, just think about the circumstances for a second. I mean, had they moved? Had Charlie been kicked out of the apartment? Had, had his mother moved to a different apartment? Had he wandered away? He would have never received this postcard. This postcard sent Charlie on two auditions. He booked them both. The first was a new play called Jim, A Romance of Cocaine. It closed within two weeks to negative reviews. The other was for a tour of the play Sherlock Holmes where Charlie would be playing Billy the Page Boy, for which he would be paid two pounds, ten shillings a week, about $400 a week in today's money. Charlie remembers, quote, I had suddenly left behind a life of poverty and was entering a long-desired dream, a dream my mother had often spoke about, had reveled in. I was to become an actor. It had all come so suddenly, so unexpectedly, I kept thumbing the pages of my part. It had a new brown paper cover, the most important document I have ever held in my life. During the ride on the bus, I realized I had crossed an important threshold. No longer was I a nondescript of the slums. Now I was the percentage of the theater. I wanted to weep. Sidney's eyes were filmy when I told him what had happened. He sat crouched on the bed, thoughtfully looking out of the window, shaking and nodding his head. Then he said gravely, this is the turning point of our lives. If only mother was here to enjoy it with us. Now keep in mind, Charlie is still illiterate. Sidney had to read the play over and over again for three straight days for Charlie to learn his part, but learn it he did. And for the next two and a half years, Charlie would tour with this production of Sherlock Holmes. Being on tour was a lucrative but lonely time. Charlie once again fell back into those same coping skills he had developed in Hanwell. You know, imagination, pretending, even talking to himself. He said that he felt so shy that when faced with the other cast members, it was as if he had forgotten how to talk. With genuine downtime for the first time in his life, Charlie began to experiment with new things. He bought a camera, turning whatever room he was staying in into a makeshift darkroom. He bought a violin, he adopted rabbits, he would sing and clog dance in local pubs to earn extra cash. Now, there were other situations on tour which were downright horrifying, such as a three-night stand in the Welsh town of Ebo Vale. It was here he found a room in a miner's house. There was a couple who lived there and seemed nice enough, but the kitchen door was always shut. Whenever he wanted food, he'd have to go and knock on the kitchen door. The door would open only a few inches and someone would put the food out. The second night, the father came to him and said, I've got something that might fit your kind of business. Ever seen a human frog? He led Charlie into the kitchen, where in the corner there was a dresser with a curtain draped across the bottom cupboards. He said, Hey, Gilbert, come on out here. A man with no legs, an oversized blonde flat head, sickening white face, sunken nose, large mouth, and two powerful muscular shoulders and arms crawled from under the dresser. Hey, Gilbert, jump, the man said. 
and the half-man used his arms to jump up. How do you think he'd fit in with a circus? The human frog! Charlie didn't know what to say. He suggested the names of a few circuses he knew, but the father kept going. He put Gilbert through a whole routine, crawling around a rocking chair, doing little tricks. Charlie was so shocked he didn't know what to do. He applauded Gilbert and said he did a great job. And he went back to sleep, or at least tried to sleep. The next morning, the mother came in and said, I understand you saw Gilbert last night. He only sleeps in there when we have company. Charlie realized he was sleeping in Gilbert's bed. This anecdote would go on to inspire an infamous episode of The X-Files called Home, which was only aired once and then banned for being too disturbing. I think this story also cuts to something deeper. Charlie, like many performers, had a love-hate relationship with his craft, and I think he related to the tragedy and loneliness of Gilbert far more than he related to his parents. I think some part of him always felt sort of like a performing freak, different, misunderstood, and alone. Later on in the tour, when a role opened up, Charlie managed to get Sid a gig. For the first time in their lives, they were both actors. Additionally, Hannah was released from the asylum. The boys decided to celebrate by inviting her to meet them on tour and lavishing her in their newfound luxury. They commissioned a deluxe apartment, filled it with flowers, and arranged a dramatic dinner. But when she got off the train, Charlie was shocked to see his mother, aged, heavy, severely depressed. All her old theatricality was gone. They sat in uncomfortable silence. She was indifferent to the fancy meals and lodgings. Eventually, the boys agreed that it would be best if Hannah just went back to London. They bought her an apartment, gave her a living stipend. She would never go hungry again. And yet, within a year, she would once again be committed to the asylum. And although Hannah would live for a long time to come, her sanity never returned. Now, Charlie re-signed to tour with Sherlock Holmes several times, and his popularity grew. Eventually, he was hired to play Billy the Page Boy on the West End, opposite William Gillett, the American playwright-actor who had co-written the stage version of Holmes and originated the part. He played for celebrities, he got rave reviews, he performed for the royal family, and was considered Britain's greatest boy actor. He was even invited to the funeral of Sir Henry Irving, the first ever actor knight. Of course, Charlie was elated. I mean, he had arrived. He had surpassed anything his mother and father could have ever dreamed. But with this newfound fame also came an ego. Cocky and a little bit conceited, Charlie began looking for his next big role. But there was nothing to be found. When an old school casting director kept him waiting too long for an audition, only to tell him that it was for a touring production, Charlie said, Madam, I am not accepting out-of-town engagements. He walked out of the office and didn't work again for nine months. Secretly, Charlie had hoped that Gillett would invite him to America and that he would become his newfound mentor father figure. But when the run of Holmes ended, no offers came. Sixteen years old, Charlie was suddenly out of work. Quote, Whores, sluts, and an occasional drinking bout weaved in and out of this period, but neither wine, women, nor song held my interest for long. He had outgrown his boyish looks, he had to face the fact that rather than being the next big thing, his success may have been due to some fortuitous typecasting. After all, he still had his distinctive Cockney accent. And while Charlie searched for a home on the legitimate stage, Sidney was doing slapstick comedy back in the South London music halls. Charlie resisted, not just out of pride, but in a way he had always been afraid of the audience. 
Perhaps it was since that first performance when his mother was heckled off stage. He preferred the stuffy official theaters where actors could safely perform behind the fourth wall. He could have given up. He wanted to be a great tragic actor, but in the end, he swallowed his pride. He trekked back across the Thames to the South London neighborhoods he had thought he left behind and joined Sydney doing comedy. His first part was playing a bungling plumber's assistant in clownish face paint. Now, I myself, in some small way, can really relate to what Charlie was going through. I myself went to school for theater, and coming out of school, I had some really great opportunities and great parts working in off-off-Broadway theater in New York. But, as life has it, things did not go my way, and I ended up having to move back home to Athens, Georgia. Back in this small hometown, I didn't know what else to do, so I auditioned and booked a part in a local community theater production waiting backstage for the curtain to come up in that community theater and getting ready to step out in front of that small audience was such a blow to my ego. I can only imagine what Charlie must have felt, having once been hailed Britain's next great boy actor and now all of a sudden playing this bungling plumber's assistant. But as is so often the case with these life-changing moments, you know, this was the very decision that would lead Charlie to his future he would learn how to combine tragedy and slapstick. And this would be the defining quality of his art for the next 50 years. Using the same diligence he had displayed when learning the intricate Lancashire clog dancing, he set about learning slips and falls of slapstick comedy. After a brief tour in the Plumber's Act, he auditioned and got a part in a traveling troupe of teenage comedians called Casey's Circus. Charlie spent 15 months in this troupe. He later quoted that this time rebuilt his confidence, and he learned to love the magical rhythm of making an audience laugh. Quote, I had stumbled upon the secret of being funny unexpectedly. An idea going in one direction meets an opposite idea suddenly, and ha-ha, you shriek. It works every time. That raw talent that had pushed him to be a butt-sniffing cat at the Hippodrome had become studied and refined just like his mother taught him. His comedy had real professional technique behind it. Eventually, he grew out of his teen troupe and was once again without a job. And this is a moment he decided to go out on his own. At the time, Jewish comedians were all the rage in London. He decided to make a, quote, older Jewish costume and fashion a one-man act filled with songs and jokes that he took from an American joke book. Based on his reputation with Casey's Circus, he booked a week's trial at Forrester's Music Hall, which was in the center of the Jewish quarter of town. He said, quote, my future hopes and dreams depended on that trial week. After Forrester's, I would play all the important circuits in England. Who knows? Within a year, I might rise to be one of vaudeville's biggest headliners, end quote. He even gave out tickets to a young girl that he was boarding with who had a big crush on him. The night of the show, he was super nervous, putting on this ridiculous Jewish get-up. He steps out on stage and starts talking in an exaggerated Jewish accent. Immediately, the audience starts throwing orange peels, stamping their feet, and booing. And these people were mostly refugees from ghettos and pogroms of Eastern Europe. He started to talk faster. He got nervous. The audience starts blowing raspberries and pelting him with little coins until he ran off the stage. He went to the dressing room, grabbed his makeup, and never returned to the theater. When he got home to the boarding house, he found out that the girl who liked him went to see the show, but when he saw her the next day, she didn't mention it. Charlie was mortified. He realized how horribly his anti-Semitic act had come off, 
He was embarrassed. His next few gigs were also failures, and his confidence reached an all-time low. He was beginning to wonder if he was even on the right path. Once again, Sid came to the rescue. By this time, Sidney had become a star in what was the greatest comedy entertainment of the day, Fred Carno's Speechless Comedians. Fred Carno, who went by the fantastic nickname of Govna, was the king of music hall sketch comedy. He had over 30 touring companies that went all over the world. Think of him as like a a cockney Lauren Michaels with 30 different SNL casts touring at all times, except they're actually funny. And these shows were wildly successful, with top billing performers earning upwards of 30 pounds a week, way more than Charlie's two pound a week salary with Sherlock Holmes. Carno was a genius. He put a great emphasis on ensemble work. He'd pair young actors with more seasoned performers. He valued drilling each troupe so that the actors would understand each other's quirks and timings. Until a group had been performing for half a year together, he considered them an unskilled scratch troupe. He would drill them in rehearsals, criticize them mercilessly, and teach them to pair broad slapstick with what he called wistful moments, tragic beats of sentimentality that made audiences care about the characters and then somehow laugh even harder at the next gag. Many of the acts were dialogue-free, so each actor had to bring his own individual twist to the wordless, unwritten, improvisational elements that were at the heart of the comedy. And this kept the acts fresh and kept audiences coming back for more and more and more. Stan Laurel, of Laurel and Hardy fame, was a fellow Carno comedian. He and Charlie would become roommates on their later American tours together. And he said, quote, Fred Carno didn't teach Charlie and me all we knew about comedy. He just taught us most of it. If I had to pick an adjective to fit Carno, it would be supple. He was flexible in just about everything, but just as importantly, he taught us to be precise. Out of all that endless rehearsal and performance came Charlie, the most supple and precise comedian of our time. And Carno wrote most of the sketches himself, but Sid had found so much success that he was now writing and developing acts for the Carno troops. And it was because of this affection and trust for Sid that Fred Carno had Charlie come audition. He later said, quote, Sid was accompanied by a young lad, very puny, pale, and sad-looking. He seemed undernourished and frightened, as though he expected me to raise my hand and hit him. Even his clothes were too small for him. I must say that at the first moment, he seemed much too timid to do anything good on the stage, especially in the knockabout comedy shows. Still, I didn't want to disappoint Sidney, so I took him on. He agreed to let Charlie play a supporting role in his sketch, The Football Match, opposite star Carno actor Harry Weldon. In this sketch... Chaplin was a slapstick villain who unsuccessfully attempts to bribe a slow-witted soccer goalie into throwing the team's championship match. In his opening scene, he was to enter into the team's training gym filled with dumbbells and punching bags. There he was supposed to find the goalie named Stiffy and bribe him. Weldon was a legendary Stiffy, and they said his performance was unforgettable and he would play the part for 30 years. So, after a week's rehearsal, Charlie is backstage. He's getting super nervous. You know, he's still thinking of the disgraceful failure at Forrester's months earlier. His part is supposed to just be the straight man to stiffy the goalie. But Charlie wanted to squeeze a laugh out of everything. So he hears his cue and he runs out on stage, surprising the audience in a giant cape and carrying a cane. He then turns to reveal his tiny mustache and red nose, getting his first little laugh. Building on the audience's expectations, 
He proceeds to trip over a dumbbell, and as he tries to sturdy himself, tangles his cane in a punching bag, which then punches him back in the face. He fights with the punching bag until he finally extricates himself. But in the melee, he loses a trouser button. So all of a sudden, his pants are falling down. So using one hand to hold up his pants, he uses the other to search for the button. It was at this point that Stiffy enters. But before he could even score his first laugh, Charlie grabs him by the rest and says, Quick, I'm undone! A pin! Harry Weldon the actor playing Stiffy, was shocked. I mean, none of this was in the script. But his reaction only made the crowd laugh harder. The rest of the sketch proceeded as expected, and Harry's classic jokes got even bigger laughs because Charlie had warmed up the crowd so well. Yet still, Weldon was shaken. This young performer was taking liberties he was not expecting, and he didn't like it. Charlie didn't care. He was elated. Unfortunately, with Sidney out touring the provinces and his mother back in the insane asylum, he had no one to share it with. He walked around London, sipping tea and talking to himself until five in the morning as a means to celebrate. Fred Carnot came to watch Charlie play two nights later, and hearing the anticipatory applause for Charlie's entrance, he knew he had a future star on his hands. He signed him to a one-year contract. Charlie and Sid were now earning more money than ever. Carnot felt he had a major star on his hands, but... Not everyone in the troupe liked him, particularly Harry Weldon. On one occasion, during a rehearsed stage slap, Weldon smacked Charlie so hard he drew blood, which led to a backstage scuffle. Carno later remarked, quote, He wasn't very likable. I've known him to go whole weeks without saying a word to anyone in the company. Occasionally, he would be quite chatty, but on the whole, he was dour and unsociable. He lived like a monk, had a horror of drink, and put most of his salary in the bank as soon as he got it. This aloofness and outsiderness would follow Charlie for the rest of his life. But can you blame him? He had been through things, seen things that most people could never understand. He also took his craft extremely seriously and was afraid of the pitfalls that had killed his father. A lot of his fellow actors assumed him to be a self-absorbed, arrogant brat. He was teaching himself how to read, so he spent a lot of time buried in books. Others, like Stan Laurel, saw a different side. Quote, he wasn't standoffish. The thing people don't know and refuse to believe about Charlie is he's a very, very shy man. He was never able to mix easily unless people came to him and volunteered friendship or unless he was among people who didn't know him. In many ways, he was still that little boy in the orphanage, retreating to the safety of his daydreams rather than dealing with the reality of the world around him. This was also the wellspring of his talent. Charlie was 19 years old when from the wings of the Streatham Empire Theater, he saw a 15-year-old showgirl named Hetty Kelly. She came off stage and asked Charlie to hold a mirror as she checked her makeup. Charlie fell madly in love. He asked her out for a walk a few days later. Charlie said he felt like he was walking in paradise with inner blissful excitement. He walked her home for three straight days. They were, you know, saying cutesy little love things together. But on the fourth day, the conversation became awkward. She was standoffish. He became nervous. He started pressing her, you know, asking, don't you love me? Would you marry me? She was noncommittal, saying, I don't know, I like you, but uh, I just met you. Fearing imminent rejection, Charlie said, I've let this go too far. I think we should never see each other again, hoping that she would say, no, come back, I love you. Instead, she said, goodbye, I'm sorry. And then she walked away. When Charlie went to her house the next day, he met her mother instead. He begged to see Hetty, but when she came downstairs... He froze and, trying to be funny, said, I've come to say goodbye again. She said, goodbye, and left. 
In total, he had known her for 11 days, had seen her five times, and never spent more than 20 minutes with her at a time. And yet, the experience left an indelible mark on Charlie. He claimed that most of his on-screen ingenues were versions of Hetty. He held on to the fantasy of a reunion with her for the rest of his life until he finally learned of her death. After a year with Carno, Charlie convinced the governor to give him a big break and play the role of Stiffy in the football match. Harry Weldon was furious, but Carno agreed, and so, at the Oxford, the most important music hall in London, Charlie's name appeared at the top of the bill. This would mean that on his next salary, Charlie could start making the big bucks. But on the day of the show, Charlie lost his voice. The audience couldn't hear him. He flopped. Carno was furious. Charlie assured him he would do whatever it took to get his voice back for the next night. It's strange how on the brink of success, his voice left him, you know, just like it had happened to his mother and his father before him. It's as if his inner demons reared up and psychosomatically took hold of him. Sid took him to a doctor. They spent the day gargling and taking lozenges. No luck. They get to the theater that night. More gargling. More lozenges. Carno comes in and tests Charlie. Still no voice. With only a few minutes to curtain, Carnos tells Charlie he will not perform. Charlie broke down and cried. Carno was notoriously ruthless and impatient with high-strung employees or performers with stage fright. And as of this moment, he was paying an actor who couldn't act. But before he could do anything, Sidney jumped to the rescue, saying Charlie could take over his role of the drunken swell in the skit Mumming Birds. Now, this part was completely speechless. This was an incredibly generous act by Sid, and it put Charlie in the role that would catapult him to stardom. In the act, Charlie was to play a drunken audience member sitting in a box directly beside the stage, and as various acts come on to perform, he would cause more and more drunken disruptions, either heckling the performers or falling out of the box, you know, being reprimanded by security, a whole bunch of other shenanigans. In many ways, the role was tailor-made for him. He'd spent years observing and mimicking his drunk father's behavior, and also he saw his mother being heckled by drunks. He could now combine this incredible lived experience into a single character. You can actually see a version of this sketch in a later Chaplin short titled A Night at the Show. By 1909, Chaplin was playing leading roles in his own Carnot troupe, and eventually he got to play that role of Stiffy. Carnot decided to send Charlie on a tour of America. Before he went, he locked him into a three-year contract to make sure that his new star didn't defect once in the States. Charlie was excited but nervous. He spent his last few nights in London doing his typical all-night lonely walks. Too embarrassed to say goodbye, he left Sydney a note that read, Off to America. We'll keep you posted. Love, Charlie. They arrived in New York in April of 1910, playing a new Carno sketch called The Wow Wows. Charlie played some guy trying to gain entrance into a secret society. Carno thought it would be a big hit in America because America had a lot of secret societies, I guess. Instead, they bombed. Charlie would remember, quote, To say the least, failure in a foreign country is distressing. Appearing each night before a cold and silent audience as they listened to our effusive, jovial English comedy was a grim affair. We entered and exited from the theater like fugitives. The other performers quarantined us as if we had the plague. When we gathered in the wings to go on, crushed and humiliated, it was as though we were about to be lined up and shot, end quote. However, all was not lost. Chaplin was intoxicated with the American dream. 
the optimistic preoccupation with hustling and the hopes of making it big. Paradoxically, it was because of their failure he had begun to imagine other paths his life might take. Unburdened by the mark of his impoverished class status in Britain, he was determined, no matter what, to stay in America. Now, as chance would have it, on their final week in New York, they ended up playing to an all-British crowd, mostly made up of butlers and valets. They loved it, and a booking agent, who happened to be in the crowd that night, signed the troupe to what ended up being a two-year cross-country tour by train, where they would perform three shows a day in cities such as... Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Denver, Butte, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. Now, during this tour, Stan Laurel describes the same old Chaplin behavior, you know, bringing it for the shows. And then as soon as the show was over, he would go read Greek or read books about yoga. He would play his violin strung backwards so he could play it left-handed. This is not to say that he was some kind of artistic Puritan. His other pastime was women, particularly sex workers. Due to the nature of constant touring, coupled with a fear of emotional attachments, these were the types of sexual encounters a 20-year-old Charlie sought out. Chaplin returned to the UK in 1912, only to find that Sidney had got married and sold their apartment. Feeling without a home and like Sidney's third wheel, he jumped at the opportunity to go back to America on tour. Quote, This time I felt at home in the States, a foreigner among foreigners, allied with the rest. Although not as exciting... This next tour was very profitable. After six months on the road, performing three shows a day, seven days a week, the company took a week off in Philly. Chaplin had a bunch of money in the bank, and he wanted to treat himself. So he goes, and he buys a stylish dressing gown and a suitcase. He books himself into a room in the Manhattan at the Hotel Astor at a luxurious $4.50 a night. And Chaplin, all dressed up, takes the train to New York and checks into the hotel. He gets in the room... And for an hour, he walks around inspecting the faucets and plumbing, feeling the hot water come on. Surely this is what rich people do. He takes a bath and combs his hair, and he wanted to read something, but he was too afraid to call and ask for a newspaper. So instead, he just dragged a chair into the middle of the room and sat there, surveying his luxury. Eventually, he goes downstairs to the dining room, where, even though he wasn't hungry, he orders everything on the menu. Consomme, chicken roast, vanilla ice cream, champagne, always looking over the menu with a haughty flourish. After dinner, again, what do I do? What do rich people do? Ah, I know. I'll go to the opera. He walks over to the Met, sees a production of Tannhäuser. And even though he's never been to an opera, he didn't know the story, and he didn't know German, he starts sobbing uncontrollably in the crowd. He walks back to his hotel, and of all coincidences, he runs into Arthur Kelly, Hetty Kelly's brother. Arthur was a former theater manager. He recognized Charlie immediately. Charlie wanted to make a big impression of how rich and successful he had become. Arthur was there on business with a few friends and invited Charlie to join them for drinks. But as the drinks wore on, Arthur and his friends were talking about bourgeois stuff, you know, who came from what family and who had this or that car. Charlie just sat quietly, pretending to be interested. He realized these are not his people. A terrible loneliness fell upon him. The reality of the rich was so much more banal than his rich person cosplay. The next morning, he cut his trip short, returned to Philly, and looked forward to getting back on stage as quickly as possible. Yet, fate had other plans. There are varying accounts as to who in the Keystone Company saw Chaplin first or where, if it was in New York or L.A., but we do know 
that while in Philadelphia, Charlie's tour manager received a telegram that read in the most L.A. film way possible, quote, is there a man named Chaffin in your company or something like that? I, I love how it's only 1913. They've, they've literally been making movies in Los Angeles for three years. They're already like talking like a bunch of industry goons. The telegram was from Kessel and Bauman, founders and owners of the New York Motion Picture Company, which owned the L.A.-based Keystone Comedy Film Company. Charlie goes back on the train, goes back to New York. He meets them at their Manhattan office. They ask if he's ever seen a Keystone comedy film. He had, but he did not mention that he hated them. And as he described in his book later, he called them, quote, a crude melange of rough and rumble. They offered him $150 a week, twice what he was making with Carnot. Chaplin, ever the hustler, hemmed and hawed and said he could not accept less than 200 On August 4th, after a show in Winnipeg, he sent a letter to Sydney saying, quote, I have had an offer from a moving picture company for quite a long time, but I did not want to tell you until the whole thing was confirmed and it's practically settled now. Salary for the first three months, 150 per week. And if I make good after three months, 175 a week with all expenses paid. I'll be living in Los Angeles. The Keystone pictures are funny and they have some nice girls. I only want to work about five years and then we are independent for life. I shall save like a son of a gun. He had no idea that within a few years, he would be one of the highest paid people in the entire world. Chaplin said goodbye to the Carnot Company on November 28, 1913. As Stan Laurel recalled, one of the company members, Arthur Dando, didn't like Chaplin. He considered him haughty and cold. Quote, Arthur announced to everybody that he was going to present a special goodbye present, about five pieces of old brown grease paint looking like turds, all wrapped up in a very fancy box. Some shit for a shit, he said. It'll serve the superior bastard right. After the show, Charlie took the entire company for drinks. That phased Arthur a bit. But the thing that really shamed him was this. Just after his final curtain with us, Charlie hurried off to a deserted spot backstage. Curious, Arthur followed. And he saw the haughty, cold, unsentimental Charlie crying. Arthur didn't give him the gift that night, but he wouldn't be the last person who wanted to punish Charlie Chaplin. And cut. On the next episode, Chaplin goes to California and meets the king of silent comedy, Max Sinnott. He slowly gains artistic control and rises to superstardom, garnering praise and controversy along the way. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hit us with the five stars. It really helps us out. If you have any questions, comments, or you just want to say hi, shoot me an email at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow me on Instagram at strandedonstage. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>